Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. So we're in this week two of this series called Anchored, and it's how to get through life and how to thrive no matter what they throw at you. And it's, it's the lessons from the life of Daniel, this great life from the Old Testament. Just a real quick recap, um, the nation of Israel has fallen into all kinds of spiritual decline and God's not happy about it they've you know they're they've fallen into idolatry and and there's injustice and there's immorality and and you know there are all the things that we struggle with in our society things that we have to deal with and navigate and put up with and and um, the prophets of the day guys like Ezekiel and Zephaniah and Isaiah were saying hey if you don't get your act together you're going you're gonna to lose your freedom. If you don't get yourself together and figure out that God doesn't, isn't happy about these things, then you're going to lose your freedom, which, by the way, not bad advice for us now uh, to listen to as well. And, and that's exactly what happened with, with Daniel. In, eight, in uh, 586 B.C., uh, the Babylonians come in, the Babylonian Empire, headed up by King Nebuchadnezzar, comes in. They devastated the country. They destroyed the capital city of Jerusalem. They capture about 25% of the Hebrew uh, people, uh, probably a lot of young people, probably a lot of young males, teenagers, and they're going to take them back to Babylon with them. One of those who was carried off in this situation is a young teenager named Daniel. And, And he's 15 years old. And he is separated from his parents. He's taken from his homeland. He will never return. He will never see his folks again. He's never going to be in his homeland again. And Daniel's is a rags-to-riches story of this 15-year-old prisoner of war who ends up second in command at 85 years of age, second in command in Babylon. He saves the empire and outlasts three different administrations, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Cyrus the Persian. And, and when the Persians came in, they basically said, listen, uh, the king of Persia said, I'm, I'm killing all you guys, but I'm keeping Daniel. That's how good Daniel was. He stood out. He distinguished himself. And we want to figure out why. Daniel actually ends up leading two of these kings to faith in God. And at 85 years of age, he's in retirement. They have to pull him out of retirement. He's so good at what he does. They pull him out of retirement so that he can save the, the empire Again, the story of Daniel is an amazing story. Today, we're going to be looking at the tests of Daniel. And as you look at the life of Daniel at every stage, whether it's as a teenager or as a young man or as an older man, what you find is that there's something for everybody in the life of Daniel. Daniel will go through a number of tests. It says in Proverbs that fire tests the purity of silver and gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Now, before we go any further, I just want to give you a life principle. I've given you an outline that you can follow along, and if you're a note taker, you can take notes in that outline. Um, This is is the first life principle, and it's a good one. Before every blessing, there is a testing. Before every blessing, there is a testing. The Lord tests the heart. If you're going to be blessed by God, you're going to be tested by God. Some of you have walked in here this morning and you're in the middle of it right now. Here's what I'm telling you. Keep your head on a swivel because something good's coming. All right? You're going through the test now. There's a blessing that's going to come from it. God is preparing you for that. So when you go through tests, it's because there's a blessing coming. He wants to make sure that you can handle the power and the influence and the blessing that you get in life. Whatever he wants to give you, he wants to make sure that you can handle it before you actually get it. 
So the question is, what does God do? What's he testing for? He's testing for character. He's looking for character. He wants to know about your integrity. He wants to know about your humility. He wants to know about your generosity. He wants to know about your loyalty and your faithfulness and your truthfulness. He wants to see those things in you. He's testing your character. And if you pass the test of God, like Daniel, you get promoted. And, and so as you get promoted, you get more power, you get more influence. And, and along with that, God will also tell you things that he doesn't necessarily tell just everybody else. This is why Paul is so pro, pro what word am I looking for? Prolific, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. Um, you see in the New Testament, so much of the work that's written there is by the apostle Paul. And he actually said this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We speak God's message because God tested us and trusted us to do it. When we speak, we are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. Two words stand out there, tested and trusted. Tested and trusted. Daniel's character is tested many, many times, and each time he passes the test and he gets a promotion. God gives him more influence. God gives him more power. God gives him more insight. He tells Daniel stuff that he didn't tell just anybody else. In fact, there are only two guys that God shared with basically how the world was going to come to an end, and that was Daniel and, and the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation. He shared that with those guys. He didn't share it with really anybody else. God gives Daniel visions, and, and they actually appear in the text that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks, and Daniel predicts all kinds of things that happen in history. A couple of things that he predicts is he predicts the rise of the Roman Empire, he also predicts the rise of the Greek Empire. Now, now, why did God do that? Because he had tested him, and Daniel had passed the test so God could trust him. Now, now let me give you another life principle, and you might want to write this down. God tests us with stress before he trusts us with success. Daniel is tested many times, and every time he passes the test, and he gets promoted, and we're going to see this in the weeks ahead. Each week in this series, we're going to take a look at different things that Daniel goes through, and you might as well know them because they're the same kind of tests you're going to go through. So it's kind of like an open book test or a quiz. You remember those in school? I loved those because I could pass those, right? He'd say, the guy, professor would say, hey, this is an open book test. All right, you're my kind of professor. Um, last week, we looked at, at the first test. What do you do when you go through a major life change? How do you handle that? How do you navigate that in your life? When you, you will go through some major changes. This is a test. And, and when, right now we've got kids graduating from college and kids graduating from high school. And when we honor the graduates um, each year, I always give the graduates a, a Bible and I've written, I've inscribed to write a little something in the front of that. And in every one of those for years now, one of the things that I always say is over the next five years, you are going to be making some of the biggest decisions in your life. Decisions that impact the whole balance of the rest of your life. And so, you know, how you make those decisions, it's, it's really important that you, 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 you make good decisions because, it, you know, you're going to be going through all kinds of life change. And the decisions you make are going to affect those life changes. So last week we talked about the five things that God wants to do in your life when you're going through major change. And if you didn't hear that sermon, I would encourage you to go online and listen to it on our app or online on our website because it, it really was helpful, I think, if you're trying to navigate life change. Um, you need to know 
how to, how to do things as you go through these changes in your life. Today we're going to look at the, the, the test of social pressure. Daniel experiences the test of social pressure. What do you do when you're pressured to conform to do something that isn't right or isn't true? Uh, a boss or a government or some authority figure, a teacher or a coach, some authority figure in your life, and, and you feel pressured to do something that you know <clears throat> is just not right and it's not good. What do you do? Uh, when King Nebuchadnezzar takes 25% of these kids back to Babylon with him, he instructs them, he instructs the, the, his, his people back in Babylon to pick out the very best, the brightest, the, the, the great athletes, the, great, you know, the, the, the talented, beautiful, smart ones, and, and the most gifted, and he wants to bring them into the palace. So they round up a bunch of these young teenage Hebrew boys, and Daniel is one of the boys that gets picked. Now, you've got to remember, this kid is 15 years old when this happens. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, we're going to put these guys through our indoctrination process. We're going we're to completely reprogram them. We're going to delete your memory of Israel. We're, we're gonna, you're not going to need your Bible anymore. You're not going to need your God anymore. We're going to indoctrinate you, basically brainwash you. And you're going to be trained here for three years. At the end of that three years, you will serve in my royal court. And they teach these boys a new language. They, they teach them a new culture, new habits, um, new religion. They even give them new names. Now, we looked at this briefly last week, but I want to look a little deeper. Daniel had three friends, and we, we find this out in Daniel 1, verse 7. Uh, the head of the palace staff gave them Babylonian names. Daniel was named Belteshazzar, which is not to be confused with Belshazzar, who will appear as one of the kings later on. Daniel was named Belteshazzar, Hananiah was named Shadrach, Mishael was named Meshach, and Azariah was named Abednego. And you say, Brett, why would they rename these boys? I mean, what, what's up with that? Well, because their Hebrew names all made reference back to the, to the Israel, Israel god Yahweh. All these names had some connection. It connected them to, to the Israel god Yahweh. And these boys are all going to be renamed after pagan gods. Like Daniel in Hebrew means God is my judge. Anytime you see El in the Old Testament, that's a name for God. And so God is my judge is what Daniel means. And his name gets changed to Belteshazzar, which means Baal's prince. And Baal was one of the pagan gods of the Babylonians. He was a phony god. Hananiah means God is gracious. And his name gets changed to Shadrach, Shadrach was one of the moon gods for the Babylonians, and that's what his name becomes. Mishael gets, means who is like God. His name gets changed to Meshach. Meshach is one of the fertility gods of the Babylonians. So you can see what they're doing. They're taking them away from Yahweh, and they're, they're trying to reorient them to the Babylonian gods. Azariah, which means God has helped me, is renamed Abednego, and, and that means servant of Nebo. He also was one of the gods of the Babylonians. So not only do they get new names, new identities, new jobs, new clothes, they said, you don't get to eat Jewish food anymore. Okay, you're not going to eat Jewish food. We're going to give you a new diet. You will only be allowed to eat what the king eats from now on. It's going to come from his table. And this was a total reprogramming. And that's where we pick up the story today in Daniel chapter 1, verse 5. It says this, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. And then you look down to verse 8, because you know there's a big but coming, right? 
And you get that in verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission, I would circle that word, for permission not to defile himself this way. This is a training table. This is like a five-star athlete who's really good in, in you know, football or basketball or baseball, and he's really good, and some big university comes along, and they recruit him, and he signs his letter, and he ends up, shows up at the university. One of the first things they do is they stop eating things like Twinkies and chips and soda pop, and they put them on the training table. They want, they want to give them food that will help them bulk up and get stronger and have more stamina and those kind of things, and it's called the training table. Now, I want you to notice that this isn't just any old food that they're wanting Daniel to eat. This is the king's food. It comes from his table, which sounds like a good thing, but Daniel refuses to go along with the program. He says, look, I'm not going to defile myself by eating that food, which defile is an interesting word. We get it from the Old English. It means to corrupt or to pollute. Uh, it's a loss of purity. And uh, that shows up like I, I do some camping. And whenever I show up at a campsite, I'm always interested to see how the people before me left the site. And most of the time you show up and it looks pristine and it looks great. But I have showed up at campsites before and had to clean it up before we could do anything, move tables around because somebody left it a mess. And so whenever I get done camping, one of the last things I do after I've got everything buttoned down, I just walk the campsite and make sure that it, I want it to be as nice and as, I want it to be, if I can make it, I want it to be better than it was when I found it um, because I don't want to defile the campsite. If you've ever seen somebody throw garbage out a window in their car, they're defiling the environment when they do that. They're polluting, they're corrupting. And so you say, okay, Brett, what's wrong with Babylonian food? Why wouldn't Daniel, why would he take on the most powerful man in the world and say, your food is not good enough for me to eat? You know, what, what's up with that? Well, there are three reasons that Daniel refuses to conform here. Number one is a health reason. The king's food was not really great food for Daniel. It wasn't as healthy as the, as the diet that Daniel had become accustomed, to which Daniel had become accustomed. And by the way, there's a book that's been written um, and basically comes from this story in Scripture. You may have heard of it. It's called The Daniel Plan. And The Daniel Plan basically outlines, it's not really a diet, it's a, it's a kind of a total health plan that it involves five areas of your life. It involves faith and focus and fellowship and fitness and food. And it takes a look at each one of those and how they relate to one another and how they can make our life better and about five or six years ago, this book spent a, quite a bit of time on the, the bestseller Christian book list. Um, very successful. And I tell you that to ask you this question. Do you think when Daniel is 15 years old and he's making these decisions about what he will and will not eat and he's trying to be faithful to his God, do you think Daniel had any inclination at 15 years of age that as he's doing this, somebody's going to latch on to this idea 2,600 years later and write a book about it and influence millions of people's lives through the reading of this book. And the answer to that is no. Now, why do I make that statement? You never know how decisions that you make might impact generations down the line, maybe thousands of years down the line, and it could be millions of people. And you go, well, Brett, I'm never going to influence millions of people. I doubt seriously Daniel thought he would influence millions of people, but he has. I, you know, as, as I 
came across this in my preparation this week. I, um, I just, I, I sat in my office for just a few, I kind of got lost. I kind of went down a rabbit hole for a few minutes and I started thinking about how, who has influenced me. And I started thinking about my pastor, L.D. Campbell. L.D. Campbell, when he was 15, 16 years old, decides that he is going to leave East Tennessee. He grew up hard. His mama passed away early, and as I think his grandmother raised him, and he, just, he didn't have any money, and he, he went off to Johnson Bible College. He would live there for four years. He would never leave the campus. He would live there four years. They basically adopted him and had him as a son on campus. And he spent four years, got his degree, got out, went, went on into ministry, uh, a decision that he made, eventually makes a decision to come to Florence, Kentucky, to my little church, which was about our size, maybe not even quite as big as our church. Um, that church would eventually grow to be about 2,800 people, 3,000 or so, uh, totally relocate their campus, beautiful facility now, it's wonderful. And, and I would grow up under the preaching of L.D. Campbell. He would greatly, greatly influence my life. He would come alongside me, put his arm around me, and say, Brett, I think you have the skills necessary to go into ministry, and you should consider that as what you're going to do with your life. Well, eventually, I heard that message. And so I went into ministry, and I went to Bible college, and I got out, and I started doing youth ministry and started to try to have an influence on people. And over the years, have sent people to Bible college who themselves have now gone out and are teaching. And I started thinking about my reach and my influence, and I'm not anybody special. I'm, I, you know, I'm a little pastor at a little church in Terre Haute, Indiana. I don't have any delusions of grandeur about my grand scheme and my grand role in life, but I have had a little bit of influence. And any, any influence that I have had has come from L.D. Campbell, who was influenced by the people who came around him, who were influenced by the people who came around them. You never know who you're going to influence and how far your reach is going to go. When you're faithful to God, he does amazing things like that through us. So a decision made by a 15-year-old boy 2,600 years ago actually influences millions of people. So there's a health reason, Daniel says, I'm not going to eat it. Then there's also a cultural reason that Daniel says that. God has given the Jews very strict dietary laws. We refer to them as kosher laws. You may have heard that, that expression. And God did this to remind them, hey, you're going to be special. I have chosen you. I'm calling you out to be special. You are going to be set apart. You are never to forget that you are a unique group of people. But we know that Daniel is not just rejecting this food just for, because of health reasons and not just because of cultural reasons. We read this in 1 Timothy. False teachers forbid, to, forbid people to eat certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. And God says, if I made it, you can eat it. Now, he doesn't say eat it all, <laughs> okay? <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't say that, and, and he, he doesn't say to eat it to excess, which we can have a tendency to do once in a while. He did say that anything he'd made was not off limits. Now, it was pointed out to me um, that, that God didn't necessarily make Twinkies, okay? So things that grow on trees, God made and said, you can eat any of that. Um, eat Twinkies, you're kind of on your own. I had somebody walk out after the first service, and they said, I found it interesting that you didn't say that God didn't make Krispy Kreme donuts. And I'm like, well, why would I incriminate myself like that and limit the, you know, I'm not doing that, no. 
Because um, I'm pretty sure God made a Krispy Kreme donut. Amen. Hallelujah. Right? Praise Jesus. We should all just hit our knees right there. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. See, it's what comes out of your mouth that tells what your heart and your attitude is. In the, you didn't, I didn't preach it live, but I did it for the online crowd about two weeks ago. I did a sermon called Mo, about motives. And I made the statement in that sermon, um, and, and usually I get a little pushback when I say this because it does sound weird, but I say, I, I, and I believe this, I think God is more concerned about our attitudes than our actions. I think God's more concerned about our attitudes than our actions. And people hear that and go, but Brett, actions are important. I'm not saying actions aren't important. They are. They absolutely are. But all of our actions are driven by our attitudes. And if the attitudes aren't right, if the root's not good, everything that follows from it's not going to be good. So really, arresting the attitude is really the issue. That's what defiles. Jesus says, that's what's defiling you. It's not what goes into your system. It's what's coming out. And so Daniel is rejecting this for health reasons, cultural reasons. And the third reason is this is a spiritual attack on Daniel's identity. Okay, It's It's a spiritual reason. This is another attempt to reprogram him and try to get him to forget his God and the values that he was raised under as a kid. And they want to change everything about Daniel, even his diet and his name. So this is the test that Daniel has. And in his first test, it reveals four character qualities that I want us to kind of focus in on this morning. And this is important to you because if if you want God's blessing for your life, if you have built these four character qualities into you, if, if you want to be promoted in your life, and, and, and maybe you're in a hostile situation, maybe at work, you know, some people might have walked in here this morning, and, and you'd say, man, Brett, my whole work thing is just out of control, my boss is, is a mad person, and, and um, you know, it's just out, it's out of control. Um, maybe you're in an environment where not everybody is on board with what you believe. You need to focus on these four character qualities that we're going to look at this morning. The character quality we see in Daniel as it relates to this food test and what it reveals is Daniel's integrity. Daniel has integrity. He never forgot who he was. You can change my name. You can change my address. You are not going to change my heart. My heart belongs to God. Daniel 1 verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself. He says, I'm not going to be conformed to what the society says I should do. I'm not going to take on their values. Romans 12, 2, famous verse. Don't conform yourself to the values of this world. Instead, let God transform you by a complete change of how you think. Then you will be able to know the will of God. You have two choices. You can either be conformed or you can be transformed. You wake up in the morning, you're doing one of two things. You're either taking ground from the devil or you're giving ground back to him. Okay? You're either conforming or you're transforming. You can't do both. You've got to make up your mind which one you're going to do. Uh, when you get conformed to this world, you start to look like everybody else. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to look like everybody else, especially these days. That's just boring, and, and, and it's, I don't think it's good for us. You can, you can either conform and look like everybody else, or you can let God transform you from the inside out through his word and, and Paul tells us that when you do that, you are going to know the will of God. Now, I talk to people all the time, and one of the things that comes up in our conversations is, Brett, 
I just don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know what the will of God is. I just wish I could know what the will of God is. Well, here's a question. Are you going to be like everybody else? Or are you going to be different? Are you going to be unique and follow God and be who God made you to be? And as long as you're worried about conforming, as long as you're worried about being cool and sounding cool and dressing cool and being like everybody else, as long as you're worried about conforming and you're not really in the business of transforming, you're not going to know the will of God. I mean, we, we, quite honestly, we look like junior and senior high boys and girls once in a while. You remember when you were in junior and senior high and you walked into the cafeteria and you wanted to sit at the cool table? You remember that? I, listen, I was about four feet tall when I was in the ninth grade. That's not an exact, I was four feet 11. Imagine that. Four feet 11, 88 pounds, ninth grade. Pitiful. I'd walk in with my little tray, you know, and I'd see all the athletes and all the cheerleaders, and I would want so bad to sit at that table, but I knew that's not, well, that wasn't my table, but I wanted to be cool. I wanted them to like me, and you know what? We never fully grow out of that. There's still a part of us that still wants to fit in. We still want to be cool. We want to, we want to be popular. We want people to look at us and esteem us highly and and you know what God says, hey, you can, go, you can go that route if you want to, but here's what I'm telling you, you will not know my will if that's the way you're going to live your life. You're going to live your, your life in a blindness because you're not being transformed by me. Because when you get transformed by me, you come to know what my will is. But, but, but if you say, I don't care what other people think. I want, what God's, I want God's best for my life then you will be transformed and you will know the will of God. Second thing that is revealed in Daniel is discipline. Discipline. Daniel controlled his ego and his appetite. Two things that are really hard to control, aren't they? Ego and appetite. Daniel 1, verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind not to eat the food and wine given to him by the king. This had, had to be a major temptation. For Daniel, I, I just can't even imagine. Because I imagine the, the king's food was pretty fantastic. But Daniel overcomes the temptation. Now, if you were Daniel, you're a 15-year-old kid. You, you've been taken from your country by force. You, your parents are nowhere to be found. They're long gone. You're never going to see them again. You're in this foreign country. There is no parental uh, input into your life. There's no parental wisdom. No, you know, think about all the things that your parents gave you. My mom and dad, my mom especially, I'm 58 years old. My mom is still giving me wisdom. Like, you know, I'll be talking about something. I'm going to do this, mom. Now, Brett, now you need to think about that before you do that because you know that's not, that's, not, that's not how you're supposed to behave. It's not how I raised you. I'm 58. She still talks to me like that. Well, you know, we need that. We need that around us. Daniel at 15 has all that stripped from him. He has nothing like that going on. No parental control, no parental counsel or supervision. And then the most powerful man in the world comes and starts offering you all these perks and all these things. And he says, you're going to be on my personal staff and I'm going to give you power and prestige and pleasure and you're going you're, you're to know the very best of everything and you're going to have all these perks of the palace and luxury and you're going to be pampered and, and you'll, you'll be given preferential treatment and you're going to get the best education and the best gourmet food. Now let me ask you, would you turn that down? You're 15, you're by yourself, there's nobody, I mean, you're looking around, you're like, well, nobody's going to know. No parents. I would submit to you that this happens all the time today. 
kid that's good in basketball or football, he, he goes to college, he impresses the scouts, the NBA, the NFL comes calling, and now they, 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 get, they sign these kids, they give them enormous salaries, I mean enormous salaries, huge paychecks. I've heard athletes talk about the first time they get that first paycheck and what it does to them, and it's, it's not good. And now they're treated like gods, and they get all the perks of our society. They get into trouble with the police, and they've got a publicist or somebody that can come behind them and you know, kind of hush-hush that. Nobody's really going to know. They've got a huge wad of cash, and they've got all this freedom, and really, really good kids have been put in that kind of situation, and they didn't respond very well. Wasn't anything wrong with them. They just weren't ready for all that. And here's Daniel, 15, and he's having all this stuff offered to him, He's incredibly disciplined. I mean, it's just amazing to me. Without his parents, he says to the most powerful man in the world, I'm, I'm going to serve you, but I'm not going to be indebted to you. I'm not going to be co-opted by you. I'm not going to conform, and I will not be seduced by you. You can give me all the perks, but you're never going to get me to forget who I am and where I come from. I am not one of you. I am Jewish. I am not Babylonian. God made me to do this but I'm not going to cave in just because you're offering me all this great stuff. And, and, and here's the, the, this is a principle I would tell you. Just because I can do something doesn't mean that I should do it. Say that again. Just because I can do something doesn't mean that I should do it. This is an amazing amount of maturity out of a 15-year-old kid. I've known adults that didn't have this kind of maturity. Heck, I... As an adult, I've not had this kind of maturity at times. I mean, Daniel is just so impressive to me. I mean, listen, it's your money, okay? You can do with your money what you want to do, but just because you can afford something does not necessarily mean that you should go out and spend money on whatever it is that you can afford. Um, I was reading this week an article, I don't know if you saw this or not, but Jeff Bezos started Amazon, richest man in the world, $200 billion dollars. Ask yourself, what would I do with $200 billion? Nobody should have $200 billion, right? Um, Jeff Bezos, and listen, it's his money. He worked for it. He built this company from his garage to what it is today. Um, you could, one could say he's earned it, I guess. And it's his money. He can do with it whatever he wants. Who am I to tell Jeff Bezos what to do with his money? But here's, here's what I learned this week. He is getting ready. He has ordered a 417-foot super yacht. Super yacht comes with a support yacht that has a helipad on the support yacht. Think about it now. Now, this 417-foot super yacht by itself, without the little support yacht, which is, I mean, if the one's 417, the other one's got to be, what, 200? 200 feet? I mean, can you imagine? It, just the super yacht is going to cost a half a billion dollars. That's before he pays for any staff, and that's before he pays for the secondary yacht that is there to support uh, the, the big yacht. I mean, listen, Jeff Bezos can go do whatever he wants to do. It's not for me to tell him what to do. I'm just simply saying just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. Just because you can afford something doesn't mean that you should. If you know me well, you know there are certain things I like. I like cars. I like shiny, glittery, technical things with buttons and wires. And wireless now is even better and that make noises and sounds and especially video and audio stuff. And I'm like, oh, look at that. We've got TVs in our house that work just fine. 
There's no problem with our TVs, but every time I walk into a place that sells TVs, I'm like, oh, look at that one. I mean, I'm just impressed by all that stuff. But you know what? And some of, now I can't afford 417-foot yachts, but some of the things that I might like to have, some of the little toys and things I'd like to have, I could afford them if I really put, worked on it and put some money together. I could probably go buy some of that stuff. But just because I can doesn't mean that I should. It's not necessarily good for me. And so the discipline that Daniel shows is the kind of discipline that God honors. Paul says it like this in Romans 6, verse 13. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Now, this is a decision that, that Daniel makes as a teenager. He says, I want to be used by God, uh, not by the world. I, you know, I want to be transformed, not conformed. I don't want to be like everybody else. Daniel had integrity. Daniel had discipline. Third thing we see is Daniel had courage. Daniel had courage to stand alone. He was willing to stand alone. It took a tremendous amount of courage, I think, on Daniel's part to ask the most important, powerful man in the world to exempt him from the food plan that he wanted to force him to participate in. This had to be somewhat of an insult to the king. Sorry, king, your food's not good enough for me. I don't want to eat your food. I can't eat it. Now, what made this even more difficult is this. There, he wasn't, Daniel's not the only Jewish boy in Babylon. There are a bunch of other Babylon, uh, Jewish boys that are in Babylon with Daniel, and they have no problem eating the king's food. Nobody else is complaining. It's just Daniel. And the, the, the thing that, that you know, Daniel could have said is, well, everybody else is doing it. Daniel says, I don't care if the whole world's doing it. It's not right, and I'm not going to do it. And he stands alone, and he stands with courage. The majority is often wrong. History will show us that, that the majority often makes decisions that prove to be the wrong decision. And just because the majority likes a particular value, just because the majority likes, you know, passes a certain law or says that certain things are okay, doesn't mean that that value or that law is right. Right is right, and it will always be right. And you say, well, Brett, that's your truth, right? Have you ever heard somebody use that expression? That's your truth. No, that's the truth. There's the truth. That's all there is, is the truth. It's not your truth and my truth and those two truths are different. No, the truth. And you say, well, Brett, no, because there's no such thing as absolute truth, Brett. Absolute truth being des des described as something that is true for all people in all places at all times. Absolute truth. True for all people, all places, all times. And you say, Brett, there's no such thing as absolute truth, to which I would say, oh, really? How about we take you about 2,000 feet up the north face peak, uh, north face of, of uh, El Capitan and Yosemite, all right? And we put you on that ledge there with Alex Honnold. That's about 2,000 feet in the air, and I encourage you to step off that ledge. And you would say, no thank you. You know why? Because you believe in the absolute truth of gravity. <laughs> True for all people, in all places, at all times. That's what gravity, gravity wins every time, right? Because it's an absolute truth. You can line them up 
You can, you can make the, the masses say all the things that they want to say. It doesn't make it right. Only God decides what is true, not us. Daniel said, I don't care if everybody else is doing it. I'm not going to do it. God blesses that kind of courage. Exodus 23, never follow the crowd in doing wrong, and don't be swayed in your testimony by the mood of the majority. Does the mood of the majority sway your testimony? Do you get suppressed by the mood of the majority? Daniel spoke up. And he kept getting promoted. He just keeps getting promoted. God looked at Daniel and he said, this is a guy that I can use. This is a guy that I can promote. 1 Corinthians 16. Be on guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. We need courageous men and women today more than we ever have before. The fourth thing that is revealed in Daniel through this test is humility. And it showed up in his tact. Daniel was tactful when he dealt with authorities. And I'll just tell you, God loves humility. When he couldn't do what the king was asking him to do, he said, look, I can't do this. This is morally wrong for me, okay? It violates my conscience. He was very tactful about it. He, you know, the way Daniel makes his appeal shows great respect. Daniel knew that God had allowed a pagan leader to come over him in his life. That might be you. You might go to work every morning and work for a pagan boss. You, you know, pagan, we have, we have pagan governments. We have pagan uh, teachers. We have pagan coaches. We have people that come in over us that are in authority over us that do not believe in God. Some of you have bad bosses. God allowed you to have a bad boss in your life. Some of you are going to have bad bosses who tell you to do something wrong or dishonest, something that you shouldn't do, and you now have to make an appeal. Daniel 1, verse 8. Daniel asked the chief official for permission, I would circle that word, permission not to defile himself this way. He didn't demand. He didn't rebel. He didn't trash his boss on Facebook. He didn't get passive aggressive in any way. He doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't throw on a sandwich board and walk around and say, I won't eat. I won't. It's not what he does. He simply asks permission. May I have permission to be exempt from this? Very respectful. Verse 9. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Now Daniel's been in Babylon, what, less than a year? He's 15 years old, but this kid is doing something right. He's earned the respect of a pagan official. Verse 10. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Now that is a legitimate concern, okay? Can we just all stop right there and recognize that if your boss tells you that if you don't do what you're told, he's gonna cut your head off? Probably ought to take that serious, right? I mean, I get, that guy's got a problem. He's like, dude, I don't care what you eat. But if you come off looking bad, if you don't look healthy, it's me they're going to kill, not you. I, I, you know, I, it's, it's not. So verse 11, Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after him. No demands, no drama. He just talked it over with the guard. He, he had a conversation. And Daniel offers a suggestion. He says, how about this? Let me make a suggestion. We find it in verse 12. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. 
Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 19. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. They were promoted. They were put into the king's service. This is the, this is the first we're going to see of the five of, of Daniel's testings that he goes through. He never compromises his convictions, and yet he soars and he thrives in a, in a pagan environment and a secular culture. So now after three years of training, Daniel is 18 years old. And before we go any further, I just want to stop right here and show you what to do when someone has authority over you and, and it's, it's getting difficult and it's, it, they're asking you to violate your conscience in some way. How do you make an appeal? How do you make your case? What do you do when you're being asked to do something that you know is wrong and contrary to what God says to do? This is a, a test and at some point we're all going to go through this. You might be in it right now. But we're all going to get this from time to time. You need to know the skill. You may need it someday. How do you make an appeal to a teacher, to the IRS, to the government, to a coach? You need to know how to do this. You need to teach your kids how to do this. Six things. You think, six things. Brett, we've got to go home. I promise this goes really quick, okay? This goes really quick. You're going you're to think there's no way it, it goes quick. Number one, develop a reputation for responsibility. Daniel had cultivated his reputation over time, so much so that the, the authorities, were told, had respect for Daniel. Daniel stood out. Proverbs 22, do you see any truly competent workers? They will serve kings rather than working for ordinary people. In other words, you'll get a promotion. People with great responsibility, hear this now, people with great responsibility recognize responsible people. You show me somebody that has great responsibility, they are able to see in a heartbeat somebody that's responsible because it, it, it resonates with them. Uh, Christians should have, have the market cornered on this. We should be the most honest, the hardest workers, the truth tellers, the most trustworthy, the most consistent, the most punctual. We should be all those things so that when people in responsibility see us, they go, that's somebody that's responsible. Second thing is this, be humble, not belligerent. Attitude determines acceptance. Humility is a core value at Cross Lane. We think it's really, really important. What we're talking about here is making a case, not making a demand. Daniel, like I said, he doesn't make a sandwich board and make this big loud pronouncement and draw all this attention to himself. He doesn't go on Facebook, make a big stink of it and embarrass his boss on, in public or anything like that. He's humble. He looks at this guy and he says, can we work this out? Can you and I, can we just have a conversation and just work on this? Proverbs 25, when you stand before the king, and you could translate king as leader there, don't try to impress him and pretend to be important. I would say this, be humble or you'll stumble. <laughs> be humble or you'll stumble. Number three, don't be deceptive or manipulative. Have integrity. If you have a case to make with the government, the IRS, a coach, your boss, don't be deceptive about it. Don't lie about it. God does not honor dishonesty. And if you lie, God is basically going to say, hey, you know what, brother? You're on your own. I, I can't do a whole lot for you. 2 Corinthians 4. 
We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God, and all who are honest know this. God will honor your honesty. Number four, appeal to their goals and their interests. Appeal to their goals and their interests. Figure out what they want and start there. Daniel basically says, look, we want the same thing. You want me healthy, I want to be healthy. We just disagree on how to get there. Can we do this? Could we just, you know what, I, I want to be a healthy person. You, you need me to, our methods are just different. Can we just try this? Can we, you know, you're still in charge. Can we just do a 10-day test and just see? And if my way works, can we stick with it? And if my way doesn't work, then I'm, you know, you're in charge. But can we at least try this? Number five, choose the right place, time, and words. If you're a teenager, I am about to drop nuggets of gold wisdom for you right now, okay? If you want to go out somewhere, if you're trying to convince your parents of something, if you're, you're trying to make your case to your parents, the first thing you've got to figure out is the right place, and the right place is never public. Parents, can I get an amen, right? The one thing I knew was never ask my mom if someone could spend the night at our house and ask in front of them, because the answer was always going to be no. She said, don't you ever do that to me. So you've got to ask privately. You've got to pick your spots. Authorities don't change when they get backed into a corner. They just dig their heels in. It just gets worse. But if you approach them and you're humble and it's a simple request done in private, you know, can we work this out? Can I make a suggestion? Can I, can, can I ask this of you? And then do it at the right time. Kids, when your parents come in at the end of a long day of work and they put their keys on the counter, that is not your cue to start in with, all. can I, can I, can I? Right, can I? If you see them hang up their cell phone and they roll their eyes like, oh, that's not a good time. If you hear their stomach growling, that's not a good time. If you walk in and dad's got his glasses off and he's laid back in his easy chair, not a good time, all right? Figure out when the right time is. Let them relax. And then finally, the right words. Do it in a respectful way. Kids, just listen to me. I, golden nugget right here. You would be amazed how far you would get with your parents if you would just be respectful. Can I get an amen, parents? Amen. Just be respectful. Okay. Proverbs 16, 21, a wise, mature person is known for his understanding. The more pleasant his words, the more persuasive he is. Write this down. I'm never persuasive when I am abrasive. <laughs> I'm never persuasive when I am abrasive. If, you, if you've got an arrow to shoot, dip it in honey first. Okay? Number six, trust God if they reject your appeal. Trust God if they reject your appeal. In this case, Daniel's appeal is received. It worked. But if your appeal doesn't work, you just hold on to the promise of God, which is Romans 8. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Now, that isn't a promise for everybody. That's a promise for the people of faith, the people who walk with God. That's who that promise is for. There are bad leaders in the world. There are bad laws in the world. There are bad policies. There are bad people in the world. God says, I will use all of it. Just trust me. Daniel does all the right things in making his appeal. Remember, he's a kid. He's talking to the most powerful man in the world. You ask yourself a question. 
What gave Daniel the courage to stand alone like this? And here's the answer. He was in relationship with God. He was in relationship with God. One day, at some point, you will have an opportunity to confront an authority in your life, and it's going to happen if it hasn't happened already. You, You need to remember four things, and you're like, oh, my dear Lord, four more things. These happen so fast that in the first service, the drummer didn't make it out on stage in time, okay? So he's like, you said you had four more things, so I went to the bathroom, and, and he didn't make it on the, so I'm sure Roger's back there. He'll be out this time. He'll be ready. Four things, real quick, real quick. Four things. I have, remember, I have Jesus with me. I have Jesus with me. Number two, I have the Holy Spirit in me. If, if you've got a boss that's not a Christian, and you're trying to make an appeal or whatever, here's what you know. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You've got an advantage. You've got a built-in advantage. The same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you as a believer. That is an advantage. You have the Holy Spirit in you. Number three, I have the promises of God to me. There are over 6,000 in the scriptures. Get familiar with them. Number four, I have the family of God around me. That's why the church is important. That's why being in a life group is important. This week I met with my life group. We, we had some come to Jesus stuff. We had people praying. We had people crying. It was, there, it was magical. It's just wonderful to have people that are in your corner who believe in you, who will pray with you, who will walk with you, put their arm around you and tell you that they love you. Having a family, having a church family and a life group is essential. You need to do that, okay? Listen, I know I've thrown a lot at you this morning. You've been awesome. Don't forget hymn night next week. Invite your friends. Repost it online. I need some choir members. I need you to be able to sing, but I need some choir members. Okay? Uh, if, you, if you can do that, if you would do that, go talk to Cheryl, or you can come talk to me, and I'll send you to Cheryl. But uh, let's pray, and we'll be done. Father, you're awesome. Man, you're awesome. You're so patient with us when we don't get this stuff right. And Lord, we're trying, it's, but we, we're in an environment that's, we get confused, we get bullheaded, we, we, get, we, just, we get rebellious sometimes, and none of that's good. We want to be like Jesus, and we want to be like Daniel. Father, help us to have that kind of courage, that kind of perseverance, that kind of discipline, that kind of humility. Help us to find favor with the people who are in charge of us. May our bosses recognize our responsible our responsible character and our truth telling and our discipline god would we be the kind of people who reflect your glory always and finally father we're just so thankful for jesus who saves us forgives us and sets us free pray it all in jesus name